Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Radio Westeros, House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 10, The Black Queen. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's great to be here to talk about the 10th and final episode of the season for House of the Dragon called The Black Queen. Today we'll be reacting to and evaluating this episode as well as making plenty of book comparisons because we are fans of the book and it's quite a a book-centric episode. We will avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon, but we do have a spoiler section at the end, and I'll give you a giant heads up for that. So whatever your Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones background, I think we have a lot to offer tonight. In this episode, there was no significant time jump. Rhaenys has left the mainland of Westeros and is on her way to Dragonstone. Last week, the episode focused on the Green Faction and their reaction to Viserys' death where they crowned Aegon in front of the crowds of King's Landing. Here, we saw the Black Faction react to that news, and Rhaenyra considers her response to what she views as a good old usurping. Showrunner Ryan Condal called this the sister episode to the last one, and the only Greens we see are Otto and Aemond, Given this was the season finale, the writers wanted to go out with a bang and towards the end of the episode was a really wonderful, wonderfully sequenced dragon chase scene that kicked off the conflict of the Dance of the Dragons in style. It's been a great season, I think, and a lot of us feel that the show has exceeded our expectations, so we can't wait to get into talking about this finale. So without further ado... Let me introduce my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn. Hello. Thank you. We're so happy. We have so much to talk about. This was, like Yoke Boy said, very book-centric, lots of quotes, uh, even where we diverge from Fire and Blood a little bit. We're pulling quotes, so we have a lot to go through tonight. And as always, we're welcoming our uh, season co-host, Emily, with us. Hi. I can't believe we're at the end almost. (laughs) Here we are at the end of all things, or maybe not really the end of all things, but loads to say tonight. 
Uh, but before we get started, as usual, uh, we want to tell you that Radio Westeros is supported by our patrons, and you can find out more about our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash Radio Westeros. And we begin, as always, with a quick shout out for our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Crispy, the Song of Ice, Seth Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Moltu, John Wargarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jag Hot Dog Shop, house motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. And uh, as a reminder, uh, we'll do shoutouts later on for anyone who uses a super chat option tonight, and thank you in advance for that. And we also want to let you all know uh, that next week, at this time, we will be hosting our season wrap-up, which will include the three of us plus special guests. <laughs> and we will be in live stream format only for that because we anticipate having um, a good group of people. So it's going to be pretty laid back, talking about the entire season and... It will also be a fundraiser for a special cause, and that cause is Dream Foundry's Con or Bust program. Con or Bust is dedicated to increasing diversity in speculative fiction by making direct cash grants to fans and creators of color to help defray the costs of attending industry events and conventions. And we think that is a great cause. And this fundraiser will be live during the live stream, and we'll also be providing links in our socials and on YouTube for anyone who's interested in learning more about the program or donating before or after the fact. Uh, we do appreciate everyone who's been with us for the past 11 weeks and hope that you come by for one more after this one. One more quick update from Radio, Us Radio Westeros HQ. If you love dragons and now the show's done, you're craving for more dragon action, we're really pleased to tell you we have a, a new regular episode all about dragons in A Song of Ice and Fire, from their origins to their impact on the story, including a huge look at every dragon in the text, all your favourites, all the shapes and sizes and colours. We don't think you're going to be disappointed with this one. It's currently on the Patreon rollout and will be released for the public after that. So stay tuned. Okay, so why don't we begin with our analysis tonight and talk about something a lot of the fandom is discussing at the moment, the wonderful painted table. Why don't you take us away, Lady Gwen? This is one of my favorite parts of the entire episode, and I had a lot of favorite parts. Uh, the episode opened with a long shot of the famed painted table at Dragonstone. Located at the top of the Stone Drum, which is the central keep of Dragonstone, it is justly famous as the war room from which Aegon planned his conquest, and it features heavily in this episode. So we thought we'd start with a brief history and description of it from the main series. There is uh, no better source for that than Maester Crescent's prologue from A Clash of Kings, which is set on Dragonstone. And so, from Crescent's thoughts, we have this about the table. It is in a great round room with walls of bare black stone and four tall, narrow windows that look out onto the four points of the compass. In the center of the chamber was the great table from which it took its name, a massive slab of carved wood fashioned at the command of Aegon Targaryen in the days before the conquest. The painted table was more than 50 feet long, perhaps half that wide at its widest point, 
but less than four feet across at its narrowest. Aegon's carpenters had shaped it after the land of Westeros, sawing out each bay and peninsula until the table nowhere ran straight. On its surface, darkened by 300 years of varnish, were painted the seven kingdoms as they had been in Aegon's day, rivers and mountains, castles and cities, lakes and forests. There was a single chair in the room, carefully positioned in the precise place that Dragonstone occupied off the west coast of Westeros, raised up to give a good view of the tabletop. So we get that first scene in episode 10. And in that scene, the difference between the book table and the show table are not completely obvious. We see a lot of the landmarks and principal holdings of Westeros marked out on it, and it's pretty impressive. But the wow factor, of course, comes a few seasons later when the table's shown backlit by massive trays of candles beneath it, which causes all the waterways and engravings to glow like rivers of lava. And I'm sure you'll all agree that even in an episode full of outstanding characters and superlative acting, the table really stood out as one of the stars of the show. Uh, so without further ado, why don't we move on to the very first scene as we open with Lucerus Valerion standing where his most famous ancestor must have once stood, looking at the table. Yeah, so Lucerus is looking at Driftmark's location on the table. When his mother enters the room, he says the sea snake is going to die, and he's really upset that that would mean that he becomes the Lord of Tides. Remember we saw him in episode 7 telling Corliss that he didn't want to inherit Driftmark because that would mean everyone had died. And now he he does believe Corliss is at death's door. It's of course really sad to watch this scene knowing that Corliss actually lives, but it's, it's Luke that's headed towards his end. He's seen Lainor die and he watched as Damon kill Vaymond because he believed himself to have a better claim. He says he gets seasick in port and altogether I think Luke is really unsure of his place in the world. From his perspective, his sense of identity is neither here nor there. And when he returned to his old haunt in the Red, Red Keeps training yards two episodes ago, he seemed really insecure about not looking like a Targaryen. Everyone's whispering under their breaths about him being illegitimate. The writers are portraying a young teenager who is wholly unsure of himself because I, I think they're bringing him into contrast with Aemond, who is older, stronger, and extremely self-assured. So Rhaenyra is a loving mother and tries to reassure him and tell him that he is worthy, that his self-doubts are natural, and she had to contend with them herself once. Jace replies that he's not like her, he's not perfect, and it's clear how all the deaths and the continual remarks about his legitimacy have bored into his confidence. But the fact he still adores his mother does speak volumes. Rhaenyra does eventually get through to him by conceding that she herself is far from perfect. She smiles warmly at him and says, My father looked after me and prepared me for my duties, and your mother will do the same to you. Mother and son seem content here... It is Game of Thrones. It lasts for a good few seconds before they're interrupted by ill tidings from the capital. Sir Laurent Marbrand of the Kingsguard interrupts with news of Rhaenys' arrival and the viewer knows what that means. 
Yes, Rhaenys has arrived on Dragonback, which indicates a need for haste and requested an urgent audience with Damon and Rhaenyra. Like you just said, we the audience uh, might guess what her message is going to be. But from the look exchanged by Rhaenyra and Luke and uh, then from Rhaenyra's words of greeting, uh, I think it's pretty plain that they actually expected this visit was going to be news of Lord Corlys's death. Instead, her cousin delivers news of her father's death, and she does it quite abruptly and gets right to the point, which comes as a great shock to Rhaenyra, who had just left him mere days before with the intention of returning to his side. And relentlessly, Rhaenys tells her the rest. In spite of the show of reconciliation in the Red Keep, Alicent has betrayed her and crowned her son publicly in Rhaenyra's stead. There is no doubt in either Rhaenyra's or Daemon's minds that when they left the Red Keep, Viserys had just publicly reaffirmed his succession in her favor and that Alicent had privately accepted it. And so in addition to the shock of the loss of her father, Rhaenyra's once again navigating the shock of betrayal by her friend, which really is its own kind of loss. Damon, on the other hand, is full of rage. He's convinced that the Greens, Alicent in particular, have murdered his brother. Uh, in this, he basically echoes the accusation that got Lord Beesbury killed, but this is Damon Targaryen, and uh, in this case, his conviction, conviction is much more likely to get other people killed. So hearing about Aegon's coronation and Rhaenys' presence in the dragon pit with Maelys, he wants to know, like many of us did last week, why she didn't simply roast them all. And here Rhaenys shows herself to be worthy of the destiny she was denied when she reminds Daemon that war may be coming, but it's not her war to start, a statement that actually goes a long ways towards clarifying the long view of Rhaenys's decision to spare Alicent and her children. Like any good vassal or general, Rhaenys was actually adhering to a chain of command, basically, I think, uh, unlike some of the decisions that we'll see shortly from the aptly named, named uh, Rogue Prince, Rhaenys Targaryen was avoiding going rogue. So as she uh, goes to leave, Rhaenyra, having shown some signs of discomfort throughout this scene, staggers and announces that her baby is coming. The timing is very bad in more ways than one. Notably, it is far too early for this birth, and so Rhaenyra is instantly seen to be in some sort of peril. At a critical moment for Rhaenyra, as her allies, or excuse me, her enemies rally strength to their cause, she's essentially out of the game due to her position as a mother, or more specifically, a person giving birth. Uh, we saw a lot of focus on the race against the clock nature for the Greens in the last episode, who in 24 hours bolstered their position as much as possible, and were pretty successful other than the obvious Maylie's jailbreak situation. Uh, so Rhaenyra being sidelined by her labor at this critical point was hard to watch. Emma Darcy spoke in the Inside the Episode about how difficult this was for Rhaenyra, who spent her whole life resenting her role as, as a royal womb and at the same time preparing for another role as ruler of the Seven Kingdoms. To now be sidelined from the latter, which she considers her real and, and primary duty by her role as a woman and a mother is, is really difficult. 
I really appreciated the, their nuanced take on Rhaenyra, and that interpretation added something to an otherwise pretty hard-to-watch sequence. At the center of what ends up being another tragedy in the birthing bed, we find Rhaenyra facing that crisis where her two identities, her two primary responsibilities, are completely at odds with one another as the clock ticks down. And in this moment, she also seems very alone. You know, there's a maester there as well as midwives, but she's keeping a lot of physical distance from them as they fret about her early labor and try to coax her into allowing them to actually help. It's worth noting that this maester is likely Maester Girardis, uh, a long-trusted advisor to Rhaenyra, who has served on Dragonstone as maester and likely also delivered her two sons by Daemon. Girardis is someone that Rhaenyra trusts a lot in Fire and Blood. She (laughs) steals the other maester's chain and gives it to him. You know, this is also likely why she actually has a maester in the room at this point, unlike her midwife-only delivery of Joffrey in episode 6. Uh, notably, neither Rhaenys or Damon are present, though they both saw her labor begin in the prior scene. It seems that both her duty as a queen and duty as a mother are at times really lonely places for Rhaenyra. We do at least find out where Rhaenys goes, though. Yeah, Rhaenys heads down to the beach where Jace and Luke are practicing their swords, and she watches them from afar. Jace is aggressively overpowering Luke, which tells us that the brothers are very different and that the younger is more of a boy. He's unable to defend himself. More groundwork for what happens later. So Rhaenys interrupts, insisting that the lads go to their mother immediately. She knows Damon is beginning to go rogue, And this is her way of curtailing that possibility. She sends the brothers along because they're Rhaenyra's heirs and Daemon isn't. So she wants them to understand their mother's wishes in case Rhaenyra is too incapacitated to make crucial decisions. Or in the worst case scenario, that she dies from childbirth as her mother Emma did. We know Rhaenys didn't attack the Greens at the coronation in part because she has respect for the chain of command. And she knows that Damon, left to his own devices, will perhaps not respect that chain. Sent fresh from, from Rainey's, Rhaenyra's eldest boys enter her apartments and they see her laboring. Uh, she tells them that King Viserys has passed and Luke in particular is hit hard by this news. You know, he's been fretting about his grandfather Corlys and what that loss will mean for him as heir of Driftmark but instead is completely blindsided by the news that it's his other grandfather, Viserys. Despite Viserys being in failing health for years now, uh, that was an almost constant in the boys' lives. So I think that uh, in a way they weren't expecting it nearly as much. You know, grandpa's always been sick. This is the moment, really. Rhaenyra does not pull punches here, telling them that next that Aegon has been crowned and stolen the throne. She strongly refutes the Greens' claims and reminds Jace that he is her heir, which now puts him next in line to the Iron Throne, barring the pesky Aegon problem. She knows Daemon will favor war and, as mentioned before, is afraid of things moving beyond her control as she's confined to the birthing bed. Much like Rhaenys, she knows that Daemon's hatred of the Greens will overpower his desire to wait for her laboring to end, and she fears what actions he'll take in her name. Jace steps up in this moment, uh, assuring her that he can handle Damon and uh, that her wishes will be respected. So in parallel with Rhaenyra's labor, Damon is holding a war council. Damon, true to his name, as Lady Gwynne said, is going rogue. 
Initially, his plans are good related to defence, since, as he correctly assumes, the Greens would strike with stealth, if at all, at this point, patrolling the shoreline in the skies, pressing the dragon keepers into defensive service, seem like valid actions to take. Where he begins to exceed his remit is in sending messages to other lords. There's news that Lord Corliss has left Tarth, something that was mentioned as being imminent in episode eight. But recall, mere days have passed during these past three episodes. So yeah, that's a bit jarring, wasn't it? Corliss's destination is now unknown. Lord Bartimus Celtigar is present and they discuss sending messages to Lords Darklin, Massey and Bar Emmon, the Lords of the Narrow Sea, who will be amongst Rhaenyra's first supporters. He also swiftly identifies the Riverlands as the key to their support, Muppet City, and announces his plan to go there himself. It's at this moment Gisseris comes in and asserts that nothing should be done while his mother is abed on her direct orders. Damon, perhaps understanding the need for urgent action, orders the raven sent nonetheless and takes Jace outside for a little life lesson. Yes, he does. He takes Sir Stephen Darklin and Sir Laurent Marbrand along as well. These are the two Kingsguard who happened to be on Dragonstone with Rhaenyra and her family when the news of Viserys' death arrived. As such, their loyalty, though apparently to Rhaenyra, is by no means guaranteed. Should either of these men decide that their vows to serve the crown and take orders from the king and their lord commander now mean that they should serve the Greens, they're standing in a very convenient place to do a lot of damage very quickly. And as evidence of exactly how the Greens planned to use the Kingsguard against Rhaenyra, we have only to look back at last week's Green Council when Sir Otto ordered Sir Harold Westerling to take his knights to Dragonstone and kill Rhaenyra and her family. So uh, Damon is correct to be worried. Uh, he, uh, of course, does a very Damon thing. He takes the two guards out to the Dragon Mount and asks them where their loyalties lie. The way his question is framed essentially mirrors the way Rhaenyra addressed Grand Maester Orwell in Fire and Blood when he came as an emissary from the Greens, uh, delivering terms from Aegon, which in this show uh, is a task that will fall to Sir Otto Hightower, as we'll talk about later. Uh, but here's the passage that's relevant to this one. It says, Rhaenyra heard the terms in stony silence, then asked Orwile if he remembered her father, King Viserys. Of course, your grace, the maester answered. Perhaps you can tell us who he named as his heir and successor, the queen said, her crown upon her head. You, your grace, Orwile replied, and Rhaenyra nodded. And so, of course, Damon taking those uh, those questions over in the show, asks the questions, and then goes on to offer the two men a choice, either swear their oaths anew to Rhaenyra as queen, or accept a swift death uh, from Caraxes, who appears on cue over the crest of the hill. Uh, should they swear now and forswear themselves at some point in the future, Damon promises the men that they will die screaming. Uh, so this scene and the words are cut 
with the culmination of Rhaenyra's birth scene. And in fact, as Damon mentions, screaming with Caraxes very much grinning over his shoulder. <laughs> Rhaenyra is uh, screaming in the keep and uh, Cyrax is screaming in her den. So you've got these three different things happening at the same time. Uh, and that brings us to the stillbirth of Rhaenyra and Damon's third child and only daughter. In Fire and Blood, she is given the name Visenya, and, but the show doesn't tell us the child's name. I think they also uh, don't tell us that it was a baby girl. This scene is very different in the show, in fact, and besides the loss of the name and the sex, there are other things that are lost in the show version. First and foremost is that uh, Visenya in Fire and Blood was one of those deformed so-called dragon babies that are occasionally born to Targaryens, which uh, notably we first uh, see in A Game of Thrones with Danny and Rhaego. But more importantly, uh, giving birth to a dragon baby was also the cause of Lena Valerion's death in Fire and Blood. And as Yoke Boy will uh, suggest in a moment, there is evidence that the show may have intended to show this aspect of Visenya's birth, but ultimately decided against it. Uh, you know, the idea that there was something inherently wrong with the unborn child and paired with the fact that there was a recent history of a birth like this in Lena's tragic death uh, and that Rhaenyra sensed what the problem was and only wanted to get through and actually survive the experience, unlike her friend and cousin Lena. Uh, these are things that are communicated pretty clearly in Fire and Blood, but I feel like these themes are Somewhat blunted in this episode, they did a very good job showing Rhaenyra's fear when she spoke with her sons, but in other ways, the scene is reduced to a horrific and highly inconvenient stillbirth. Um, overall, I just felt like it was a bit rushed and confusing, and even though we get to see scenes of the grieving parents afterwards, I'm pretty sure viewers not steeped in fire and blood missed not only the child's name and sex, but many of the implications of her stillbirth that were communicated pretty clearly in the source material. Yeah, like Lady Gwen is saying, the idea that Visenya is a dragon baby is much more prominent in Fire and Blood. The book quote is, when the babe at last came forth, she proved indeed a monster, a stillborn girl twisted and malformed with a hole in her chest where her heart should have been, and a stubby scaled tail, or so Mushroom describes her. You'd have to spend a pretty long time looking at stills of the scene and the baby to confirm that there were some potential deformities. But honestly, I think this was a big miss. I think they really should have gone all in with the idea so that it was visually cl quite clear or scrapped it entirely and saved us the trouble of such a graphic scene. I think the writers were very clearly latched on to one of Martin's themes of a woman's battlefield being the birthing bed. But considering how much traumatic birth we've already seen this season, it felt a bit gratuitous this time, considering it didn't really follow the dragon baby narrative in a clear manner. Following the birth, we see Damon watching from afar as Rhaenyra cradles the stillborn girl, but he departs without a word. The couple grieves separately, with Rhaenyra preparing Visenya's body herself, attended by maesters, septons, midwives. Damon instead takes a walk on the beach. 
Uh, both mother and father are overwhelmed by their grief and grief and loss, openly crying, but they cope with it in very different ways. Uh, for Damon, he seeks solitude and uses this loss to further stoke the, his hatred for the High Towers. It strengthens his resolve to seek vengeance against his enemies. Rhaenyra instead finds comfort in ritual and process. She no doubt saw her mother go through child loss many times before ultimately dying with Balon. And there's some sort of a rote familiarity to her emotions as she cries, looking for meaning in her loss. In the books, Rhaenyra is portrayed as much angrier as she was in the show, with her saying, she was my only daughter and they killed her. They stole my crown and murdered my daughter and they shall answer for it. The show appears to have completely dropped this characterization of Rhaenyra. Instead, she's shown contrasting her husband, who has, again, been consumed by his anger towards their foes. Then we have the pious scene. So following Rhaenyra's miscarriage, there's a funeral for Visenya. It takes us back to Viserys and his son Balon, which is fitting considering Rhaenyra is compared to Viserys today. Watching the pyre, Damon and Rhaenyra stand solemnly, but as you guys have touched on, there's no dialogue. It seemed like a miss. It seems rushed, and I wish there'd been some sort of speech. David J. Peterson revealed that he had translated some words into High Valyrian to be spoken at the pyre by Rhaenyra. So he, he gave three translations of lines that they were thinking of going to use. So the first one, Visenya, my only daughter, born an abomination. Maybe she is a warning from the gods. So, yeah, this is a reference to what Emily was saying about the scales and the stubby tail. And as Lady Gwynne said, it wasn't really clear in the show what was going on there. The second line Peterson wrote is, she is an augury born on the day my father died and my mother's crown was stolen. So augury means like a an omen. So Rhaenyra is viewing this miscarriage as an ill omen, which I, I think it would have been a powerful line. And the, thir the third one from Peterson is, I would have called her Visenya, but she was not meant to be. So... Instead, there was no speech. And as you guys said, it just felt like there was something missing. So I don't really want to go over what you guys have already said, but it certainly seemed like a missed opportunity. Yeah, I agree with you, Yoke. You know, Matt Smith has shown a ton of talent for conveying a lot without dialogue throughout the season of House of the Dragon. But it did feel to me like they could have done a bit more here to kind of connect the dots, especially for casual viewers you know with his character behaving so erratically this episode a bit more insight into his thoughts would have been nice but I also understand that he's not really like a explain my feelings kind of guy however it, there's not really a lot of time for that in the scene as written because the funeral has the surprise guest Sir Eric Cargill last scene sneaking Princess Rainey's out of the Red Keep before they were separated separated by crowds of small folk Sir Eric has made his way to Dragonstone Without benefit of a dragon mount, he took a little longer to arrive than Rainey's, but he brings a much-needed morale boost to a pretty tragic funeral. The Queen's Guard serving Rhaenyra move to block his path as he approaches, uncertain of his loyalty, given that, you know, we're talking about Prince Aegon's former sworn shield of all of all the King's Guard. That was his role. However, he unveils Viserys' crown and kneels to renew his oath to 
to the queen, and thus his brothers stand down. Given that Sir Eric was so conflicted about his service to Aegon that he defected, it was nice to see him giving his oath freely to Rhaenyra and to be honored for it. It also serves as a contrast to Daemon's more aggressive demands for oaths from his brothers. Now, we don't have an official text for the king or queen's guard oath anywhere in a song of ice and fire the closest that we get to it is lord commander barristan selmy's quotes on the matter he says the first duty of the king's guard was to defend the king from harm or threat the white knights were sworn to obey the king's commands as well to keep his secrets counsel him when counsel was requested and keep silent when it was not serve his pleasure and defend his name and honor Barristan also says, Sir Gerald Hightower himself heard my vows to ward the king with all my strength to give my blood for his. And it seems like they took these concepts and then combined them with some familiar passages from the Night's Watch vows. As both orders require that men give up all claims to family, love, and lands, it makes sense and lends a bit of familiarity here. All in all, this was a really moving scene and some nice payoff for all the emotional conflict that Sir Eric went through with Aegon and his twin brother last episode. Yes, I agree. Uh, It was very moving. I've watched it uh, numerous times, and uh, every time it just makes me cry for some reason. It's just one of those things. It's true. She does. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, there were other things that did make me cry, so who knows? Who knows? I, I... I loved this scene, though it was beautifully done. Uh, it, it, in an, you know, in addition to you know being a great scene. So, last week we mentioned that in Fire and Blood, Sir Eric was Rhaenyra's sworn shield, which Emily just said was chained for the show. He was Aegon's personal guard, which was probably done in order to establish that personal conflict between the him and his brother. But as he was already on Dragonstone in the book, the task of uh, Swiping Viserys's crown and defecting from the Red Keep actually fell to Sir Stephen Darklin, who, of course, is one of the ones already on Dragonstone here. Minor change for dramatic reasons leaves us with the same result. Rhaenyra ends up with three of the King's Guard with her, uh, while Aegon has three with him, which is a change from the book uh, because he does have four in the book. But with Sir Harold Westerling still alive and kind of leaving us not knowing what's going on with him. Uh, you know, his loyalties have yet to be revealed. So there is this uh, seventh Kingsguard sort of floating out there in the world somewhere. Uh, when Eric offers up Viserys' crown, which was last seen being laid upon his corpse by Alicent in episode nine, like I said, it's just an incredibly moving scene, not just for me and a lot of viewers, uh, but for the people in universe, it's very clear that Damon is kind of lost in memories looking at that crown. I'm mean, just days before we had that tremendous scene where he placed the crown on his brother's head in the throne room of the Red Keep, but it must come with other memories as well, a lifetime of them, in fact, considering this wasn't just Viserys's crown, but it was that of his predecessor and Damon's grandfather, Jaehaerys the Conciliator. And as we said last week, Aegon having the Conqueror's crown and sword is important, sure, but there's also something really symbolic about Rhaenyra having her father's crown, the crown of the Conciliator. Because as this episode plays out, we'll see her trying to live up to her father's name and by extension to Jaehaerys. 
Damon is clearly an expert in political theater because he takes this moment with Sir Eric kneeling and pledging himself to the queen and offering up the crown to take the crown and place it on his wife's head, uh, kneeling himself in turn and naming her queen himself. As he does so, the assembled nobles in Castle Smallfolk all follow suit, with the notable exception of Rhaenys Targaryen, who is present sort of at the back of the crowd. She's clearly still observing Rhaenyra. Just as Damon's actions, which are so reminiscent of past moments with his brother, are sort of visible proof of his belief in his wife, Rhaenys' standing is proof that she hasn't yet made up her mind. In spite of her rejection of Alicent and Aegon, she knows that the final decision for House Valyrian has to be made by her husband, who as yet is unaware of the gravity of the situation on Dragonstone and in King's Landing. And all in all, this is a very compelling scene, quite different from Fire and Blood, where we hear that the Senya was immolated in the castle yard and the coronation was carefully planned by the Black Council and actually held um, some days afterwards uh, with uh, after Sir Stephen Darklin arrived with the crown. So uh, in an inversion, we'll see that the next scene is the Black Council, which is a counterpart to the Green Council that we saw last week. Yes, as we said, sister episodes. So leading into this council meeting, we see a brief scene of swords being placed on a table in an antechamber. These will be the weapons of those attending the council. It's a small but important detail as it's forbidden for anyone but the Queen's guards to carry a weapon in her presence. We also get the first shots of the painted table alight. Yeah, that was great, wasn't it? And... When Rhaenyra enters the chamber, Damon announces her and she's greeted by her stepdaughter, Raina, acting in the role of the Queen's cupbearer, a very prestigious role that Rhaenyra once served for her father. However, if you recall in those early council scenes where Rhaenyra was present as cupbearer, she literally only stood quietly in the corner and she poured some wine reduced to being a servant and largely ignored in spite of her status as the king's heir. Rhaenyra, however, has no intention of sidelining any of her children, including her stepdaughters, both of whom she invites to join her at the table. When Rhaenyra opens the council, she asks for an evaluation of their position. Damon describes their defences, the knights, crossbowmen, men-at-arms of Dragonstone's garrison, more than sufficient for the island's defence, but as he also says in Fire and Blood, as an instrument of conquest, however, our army leaves something to be desired. Yes, and uh, after he says that, uh, Maester Gerardus indicates that they have received declarations of support from houses uh, Celtigar. Lord Bartimos is standing over his shoulder and bows his head. Uh, Staunton, Massey, Darklin, and Bar Emmon, uh, which this is a reference to the letters that Damon had ordered to be sent earlier. Rhaenyra begins directing the placement of icons of um, specific houses, uh, beginning with Aaron. And when Gerardis mentions that he sent a letter to Riveron, though, with Damon's approval, Rhaenyra pauses. So we know that her husband has overstepped here, and so does he. But 
She lets it go and then proves her intimate knowledge of the Lords of the Realm when she notes that Lord Grover will need to be persuaded, uh, which essentially is echoing Damon's earlier plan of going to the Riverlands in person, which he reiterates to her now. And we do see another glance pass between them that surely indicates that she's uh, displeased at him taking action. Uh, both while she was abed and sort of presuming to make plans without her input. While I completely see her point, Damon kind of does have the right of it. Uh, in theory, swift action is essential, and you know the tension between Rhaenyra's roles as queen and mother are evident here once again. She also proves her acumen uh, with her focus on Winterfell, uh, the Eyrie and Storm's End, that split, uh, plus the houses that are going to join her from the Riverlands, essentially mirrors the split at the Great Council of 101, uh, where those houses supported Laenor Valerian's claim through his mother over Viserys' claim via a younger son. But I think it's interesting because it also foreshadows Robert's rebellion. In other words, that particular combination, um, Winterfell, the Eyrie, Storm's End, and some of the Riverlands at least, uh, seems to be the key to Targaryen survival, because we'll see in a 150 years later that exact alliance against House Targaryen is what shatters their dynasty once and for all. So um, for some reason, magic combination there. With House Valerian still sidelined in Lord Corlys's absence, a, a notable difference from the Black Council in Fire and Blood, Rhaenyra inquires about who their enemies are. The Lannisters, of course, are notable green supporters, uh, clearly in Otto Hightower's pocket. They control the West. Uh, they're not going to change their minds. And here, uh, they, it's also mentioned that they have a large fleet, which is a difference from Fire and Blood as well. Uh, this is going to prove to be in contrast with the Reach, which doesn't unilaterally join the Green Cause, and the Riverlands, which in Fire and Blood, Damon notes to be notoriously quarrelsome and whose support is going to be a key to Rhaenyra's victory. So there's this is uh, no different as he announces his plan to take Harrenhal in the Riverlands to give them a place to consolidate their power. Damon is really proving his mettle as a strategist because so far he's been correct about most of these things. But this scene also contains another key difference between book and show. In Fire and Blood, it's Princess Rhaenys who declares that their dragons are the key and enumerates their strength in that regard versus the Green's relative weakness. Here, it's Lord Bartimos Selthagar who takes some of Rhaenys's Fire and Blood words about dragons, introducing them as you know their main source of power, uh, while Daemon takes the rest. He enumerates the Black's dragons and the Green's, placing the power imbalance at... In total, 13 to 4, plus the many eggs he has in the hatcheries. And we will have more on those numbers and who they, who he's talking about during Dragon Watch later on. In contrast, in Fire and Blood, Damon is extremely restrained and actually argues against using dragons. We'll have more on that shortly, but I found this difference very interesting because in making Damon far more hawkish than his fire and blood counterpart throughout this episode the show's continuing to create tension between him and his wife that isn't described in the source material 
They're truly leaning into the Rogue Prince characterization, as we've seen many times with major departures from Fire and Blood, tending to blacken an already pretty black reputation. But I, I don't think anyone, including the showrunners and writers, would deny that Damon's military expertise is going to be the key to Rhaenyra's cause, and that by and large, with the possible exception of his enthusiastic support of dragon warfare, his strategies in the show are pretty sound. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, so why don't we talk about Otto Hightower? This next scene plays out on the bridge that allows visitors onto Dragonstone. This was the setting of a critical showdown between Damon and Otto in episode two, with Rhaenyra arriving on Cyrax and facing down her uncle, simultaneously stealing Otto's thunder. With that in mind, it makes sense that this scene was paralleled here with Damon first confronting the hand and Rhaenyra arriving on Cyrax, but this time essentially trapping him between her husband and the guards on one side and a leering dragon on the other. How'd you like that, Otto? But this scene required a significant change from the source material in Fire and Blood. Otto doesn't go himself. Probably a wise decision given Damon's burning hatred for him and his value as a hostage. So rather than Sir Otto, the embassy was led by Grand Maester Orwell, Septon Eustace and Sir Eric Cargill, and Otto's son, Sir Gwain, as well as more Septons and gold cloaks. Orwell was still present for the scene in the show and is shown respectfully bowing his head to Rhaenyra, as are Sir Eric and a number of the Hand's personal guards who all seem pretty unsure of how to defend the Hand from a dragon at close range. Yeah, uh, to be perfectly honest. So there's the ex expected exchange of names and competing titles and Rhaenyra declares them all to be traitors to the realm, after which Otto gets right to business with Aegon's terms. Yeah, the Green's terms are a near direct copy from Fire and Blood, which makes sense since Grandmaster Orwell was a key player in presenting said terms and is also a primary source for Fire and Blood. The most surprising offer to me is the Green's willingness to confirm the Driftmark succession, something they were clearly plotting against in the recent past. This offer may have been to, aimed to neutralize the Valerian threat, Otto also offers to take on Princess Aegon and Viserys, Rhaenyra's sons by Daemon, as a cupbearer and a squire. 
But it's well documented in A Song of Ice and Fire. These types of honors are no more than a hostage situation, much like Theon viewed his time at Winterfell or even John taking on wildling youths to ensure their parents' good behavior when they crossed south of the wall. Children were often used as a mechanism for keeping their parents in line. When Jamie Lannister treats with Jonas Bracken, Jonas tells Jamie that he should take Lord Blackwood's seven-year-old daughter rather than one of his sons as a hostage, suggesting that this would be a more effective due to the Lord's love for his daughter. Unfortunately for Otto, Damon is far too clever to miss the subtext in these terms and makes that plain. Damon says he'd rather feed his sons to a dragon than let them become slaves to someone as drunken and unworthy as Aegon. Throughout this episode, and the relatively minimal dialogue that Damon has, he seems to be really broadcasting his feelings pretty plainly. He's not a heroic figure and likely really would rather destroy his own family than bend to the will of the High Towers or betray what he believes House Targaryen is. It's an extreme position and not a particularly honorable one as a father, but it's true to the mercurial dragon-like anti-hero figure that Damon is. When Otto speaks his reply, it also basically comes right from the pages of Fire and Blood. Uh, here's the passage which bears striking similarity to some of Otto's dialogue in this scene. Every visible symbol of legitimacy belonged to Aegon. He sat the Iron Throne. He lived in the Red Keep. He wore the Conqueror's crown, wielded the Conqueror's sword, and had been anointed by a septum of the faith before the eyes of tens of thousands. Grand Maester Orwell sat in his councils, and the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard had placed the crown upon his princely head. And he was male, which in the eyes of many made him the rightful king, his half-sister, the usurper. Otto then says that he's sent terms to Stark, Baratheon, and Tully, houses that swore to Rhaenyra originally. Houses that Daemon wanted to make contact with immediately before Rhaenyra and Jace blocked or forestalled him. Again, we see another small rift in Damon and Rhaenyra's outlook on the situation. Uh, much like there were conflicts within the individual members of the Green faction last episode, we're starting to be shown that the Black faction is not in perfect lockstep either. Rhaenyra reminds Otto of the oaths that were sworn to her when she was installed as heir, and he spits back that those oaths are stale. Viserys siring a son obviously changed all that, he asserts, and like Fire and Blood purports, he may have a point. Some houses truly were swayed by that, as we will remember some of the lords at the hunt for Aegon the Conqueror Babe's second birthday. Yeah, uh, although that was it was a high tower who said that. So just to point out, yeah, uh, in Fire and Blood, after hearing the terms uh, such as they are, Rhaenyra tears off Orwell's chain and presents it to her own maester Gerardus. Here she rips off Otto's hand of the kingpin and calls him a traitor. You know, this guy has known her for most of her life. He served her father and King Jaehaerys and now is revealed to have been plotting his own family's advancement for all these years, which Rhaenyra always suspected and, and Damon as well. Both of them at different times warned Viserys that this is what was going on. But Otto was allowed to continue his hand, even reinstated, reinstated after uh, Lord Lionel Strong's death. Uh, Otto presents Rhaenyra here with a message from Allison. It's the page from that book about M Nymeria from episode one, which is a reminder of their former friendship. And it gives Rhaenyra pause as 
do his words. So we can imagine that after the events at Storm's End, it is going to appear to both Damon and Rhaenyra that the Greens have not once but twice offered friendship on one hand and treachery on the other. So they recently appeared to do that following the family dinner the night before Viserys' death and then the usurpation the next day. So this is not going to go over well, obviously, in the long run. The tragedy of Luke's death aside, I think that this appearance of deceit and double dealing is going to contribute a lot to the irreversible path the Blacks and Greens will soon find themselves upon. In the moment here, Damon wants to just execute Otto immediately for treason, as he so recently did with Surveyman, but Rhaenyra stays his hand and tells Otto that King's Landing will have her answer on the morrow. And then after this, we come back to the war room and Damon is giving a speech about dragons, saying, it is no easy thing to be a dragon slayer. This is lying right out of fire and blood. So I'm going to read the quote. In the stepstones, my enemies learned to run and hide when they saw Caraxes' wings or heard his roar, but they had no dragons of their own. It's no easy thing for a man to be a dragon slayer, but dragons can kill dragons and have. Any maester who has ever studied the history of Valyria can tell you that. I will not throw our dragons against the usurpers unless I have no other choice. There are other ways to use them, better ways. So other than the order of council and coronation, the main difference between book and show here is, as Lady Gwyn mentioned earlier, that Damon urges caution in the books and is encouraging more aggression in the show. Here, Rhaenyra says that in Dragon Wars in Old Valyria, everything got burned and she doesn't want to rule over a kingdom of ash and bone. And at this stage, she is considering the terms offered by the Greens, which is infuriating Damon. She wonders aloud if, as queen, it's her duty to bring, to bring peace to the realm or to claim the Iron Throne at any cost. Remember that at the beginning of the episode, she was giving Lucerys a talk about d doing duty. So... Rhaenyra being stuck on Dragonstone with an army too small to attack King's Landing gave me major post-Blackwater Stannis vibes through this episode. And this part reminded me of when Stannis decided to serve the realm by going to the north rather than focusing on fighting for the throne. And of course, she did also sound a lot like her father there, uh, a fact not lost on Daemon. There must have been times in Damon's life where he was extremely frustrated with his brother, given that Damon was more assertive and Viserys was more cautious. And it was an Oberon and Doran situation somewhat. Now he's seeing his wife displaying similar caution at a point where his fuses are blowing. He's just so angry and it's bringing the worst out in Damon. He says that... The enemy has already declared war and he raises his voice aggressively. What are you going to do about it? Given Rhaenyra is still finding her feet as queen, he's doing her no favours in challenging her in front of a room that's full of men. Rhaenyra knows they should not be in conflict in front of their lords. It reflects poorly on both of them. And so when she orders the room cleared, uh, we see Rhaenys as the last to leave and... 
She leaves with a grin on her face. I, I think that in this episode, Rainey's becomes proud of Rhaenyra. She sees some of her younger self in her. She's very glad to see a woman come into power and perhaps thinks that Rhaenyra is the sort of leader that, you know, she could have been. It seems a long time ago now that Rhaenys told young Rhaenyra that men would rather put the kingdom to the torch than let a woman sit the Iron Throne. Here we are around 20 years later in the show and Rhaenys wants to help her to that throne. I think that much is clear. Rainey's leaves, and now with no one else in the room, any restraint that Damon and Rhaenyra were showing falls away completely. All of the stress and the conflict that's been boiling under the surface in this episode, you know, Rhaenyra birthing alone, them grieving Visenya separately, Damon's hawkish attitudes towards war during and after the labor, their different approaches to dealing with Otto Hightower, everything, it all comes to a head now. Damon claims that it is her duty to crush rebellion, and she says her oath reaches beyond personal ambitions to the Song of Ice and Fire. Damon shows no recognition to this, and Rhaenyra is somewhat stunned. At that moment, her doubts about her father's decision to, if she really was heir, making her heir, are struck down. She's finally affirmed completely in that choice. But simultaneously, Damon has dealt this crushing blow, even from the be beyond the grave, Viserys didn't, you know, trust him with this secret that was meant only for kings and heirs. You know, Rhaenyra wasn't confirmed as heir for a long time, and, and presumably that was either Damon or, or it was at least open to interpretation. So feeling this had to be a, a knife to the heart for him. And he reacts accordingly, not that I'm condoning it at all, but he grabs Rhaenyra by the throat saying these omens and portents made Viserys a slave and that dreams didn't make us kings, dragons did. It's a big shift in their dynamic. And again, Emma Darcy spoke about creating this scene and how intensely they and Matt Smith prepared for it. They affirm that both characters are definitely grieving, Damon obviously doing so in a very unhealthy and abusive manner. They also clarify that they think this is the first time that Damon has been violent with Rhaenyra, understanding that this is a huge pivotal moment and a huge change to their dynamic. While the couple has had a lot of conflict in the past few years, this was this was something new for them. Not a new moment for Damon specifically, though, who of course killed his first wife, Rhea Royce, earlier in the series. Whether this characterization of him as, you know, an abusive partner is entirely book accurate or simply meant to illustrate Damon's grayness in a new way, uh, the showrunners were definitely trying to show us that Damon is not some heroic figure where any action he takes is automatically noble or just. Ryan Condal said that Damon is an anti-hero and that we should prepare for some complexity, some terrible and irredeemable behaviors and should not love him just because he looks cool riding a dragon. This scene will definitely make me think twice about cheering him on. When Damon asked Rhaenyra at the beginning of the scene, are you not angry? I couldn't help but think of all the ways we've seen him deal with grief. In a way, Emma Darcy noted in that recent interview you were just referencing, um, this episode is all about Rhaenyra's grief. But I do think it's important to remember that Damon is suffering nearly every loss that she is. So we're focused on her, but he's 
also suffering these same losses. Uh, and he has done so from the beginning. If we go all the way back to his comments about the air for a day in the wake of Balin's and Emma's deaths, a lot of people felt that was possibly just him expressing his grief for his brother as only Damon could. Just, in other words, not very well. <laughs> Uh, when Lena and their unborn child died, we saw another side of him grieving. And in this episode, when he heard the news of his brother's death, we saw that it just filled him with rage. And we later saw him struggle to share his grief over his daughter's death with his wife. Uh, Damon, as mercurial as he appears to be, isn't very good at having healthy emotions. And he often seems to be allowing himself to be driven by emotion rather than keeping them in check and directing them, which is something that Rhaenyra has actually been pretty good at so far. Okay. I appreciate both of your comments on, you know, it's a difficult scene for many people. So I want to acknowledge that. And I want to move on to talking about the scene with Corliss and Rainey's. Yeah. In this next scene, we see Corliss wake up in front of a fire. He's sweating his fevers broke in episode eight we learned he was in tarth trying to recover from having his throat sliced and a subsequent sickness while fighting in the stepstones given all the large time jumps this season it's almost jarring that the last three have occurred over a few days <laughs> it seems so long ago doesn't it when vaymond was killed it's just just a few days ago isn't that strange after jumping like 10 years each episode anyway it seems that rainies must have sent words to his carers to bring Corliss to Dragonstone and now she watches over him as he tries to regain his strength. Corliss comes to and he immediately makes a joke which shows us that he's in good spirits. He's saying he's had men killed for falling asleep on their watch but his wife is in no mood to laugh along. She feels abandoned by her husband who in the wake of Lainor's death sought glory in the war against the triarchy and left her side. You, you abandoned us for more adventures at the sea, she says. Corliss has been on many adventures and given that Rainey's, Baylor and Rainer really needed him, Rainey's has had quite enough and I think she wants to take charge now. Corliss has heard news of the new king, but he hasn't yet heard about his brother Vaiman's death. As I said, it's just a few days ago. So he has a lot to process. Corliss reacts by saying, ambition has always been the Valerian weakness and that his wife was right about this and that he's done fighting. He's just exhausted by now. He talks about reaching too far, which sounds a bit like the John Connington line from the main series. And Corliss wants to remain neutral in the upcoming civil war. But Rainey's reminds him that this conflict is about more than ambition. She recognises that. After all of Corliss's warring, it's Rainey's that's now pushing him to get involved in the conflict and use his fully-blooded and formidable fleet in the war she says that jace luke and joff are all in danger now that aegon's king she might be right about that corliss still believes rhaenyra was complicit in Lenor's death but now rainey's doubts that story and i'm sure that they would have talked more about that 
you know, off screen and that she she set his mind to rest there. And she tells Corliss that Rhaenyra is now holding the realm together at present and that really she's the only cool head in this male-dominated war room. And like I said earlier, I, I feel in this episode, Rhaenys grew proud of Rhaenyra. There's a really nice transition from Rhaenys's words about Rhaenyra to Rhaenyra at the painted table, dealing with the bickering from her lords as she presumably wonders if they can really even still have peace. The Lord of the Tides and Princess Rhaenys are announced by Sir Eric and the bickering stops. The Valarians enter, uh, with the adults being greeted by Rhaenyra as Bela and Reyna take their customary spots besides their betrothed. Corliss immediately clocks Damon's absence from the war room and, you know, gets down to business. He tracks that the situation for Team Black as it stands is pretty bleak, tenuous and uncertain allies, many potential traitors. Rhaenyra reminds the Sea Snake that, you know, these traitors or tenuous allies, you know, technically include him. He swore oaths to her, but has not, you know, reaffirmed them yet. And the situation feels tense for just a moment uh, as the entire room waits to see what Lord Corliss will do. And Fire and Blood offers kind of some reasoning for this, uh, talking about Rhaenyra's council. A dozen lesser lords, bannermen and vassals to Dragonstone, sat the Black Council as well. Celtigar of Claw Isle, Staunton of Rook's Rest, Massey of Stonedance, Bar Emmon of Sharp Point, and Darkland of Duskendale amongst them. But the greatest lord to pledge his strength to the princess was Corliss Valarian of Driftmark, Though the sea snake had grown old, he liked to say that he was clinging to life like a drowned sailor clinging to the wreckage of a sunken ship. Mayhaps the seven have preserved me for this one last fight. Now, obviously, some of those words are a little different than what he shared privately with Rhaenys in the past, but we see that kind of shift in this scene. And without the power of House Valarian and up against all the advantages that the Greens possess, Rhaenyra really would have no chance. You know, now granted the support of House Valarian, they gain massive advantages. One, we've got powerful and wealthy House Valarian to begin with. You know, since the master of coin Tylen Lannister sided with the Greens, they have the crown's gold. The Blacks need funding from somewhere, and Corliss is their wealthiest backer. They also have the Sea Snake's fleet. Corliss tells, that's number two, uh, Corliss tells Rhaenyra that this time they have fortified the Stepstones and currently control the Narrow Sea, you know, learning from some missteps when they left it undefended last time. With many of Rhaenyra's allies holding key positions around Blackwater Bay and with Driftmark and Dragonstone, both islands where the bay kind of meets the Narrow Sea, they're well positioned to take King's Landing by sealing the bay off and laying siege to it without Aegon's allies arriving in time to support. But they need more than just naval power for this, which brings me to number three, dragons. Though Damon Arney counted Maylie's and Bela's Moondancer as dragons for their side, their support was not guaranteed until this moment. Moondancer is a small dragon at this point, and Reyna has not hatched an egg yet, so really it's just Rhaenys and Maylie's that matter here. Rhaenys volunteers to patrol the gullet in support for their plan, um, able to defend allies and scout for enemy movement from the skies. Rhaenyra agrees to their plan, but does still does not want to act without you know, ensuring she doesn't want to act in a way that ensures outright war before she knows who her allies actually are. The final piece of the plan involves messages to the great houses that Otto Hightower mentioned earlier, Stark, 
Aaron, and Baratheon. The maester wants to send ravens to these high lords, but Jace pipes up with a line ripped nearly from the pages of Fire and Blood. We should bear those messages. Dragons will win the lords over quicker than ravens. Yes, and so apparently it is, you know, it is agreed that Jace and Luke will be the ones to bear the messages to House Stark, House Aaron, and House Baratheon. And then we get a brief scene where Rhaenyra describes their missions to Jason Luke. She speaks about that old chestnut, Targaryens are closer to gods than men. Oh, it's clear she doesn't really believe it. She makes a joke about how the Iron Throne makes them closer, she guesses. <laughs> uh, instead, she speaks again of, of service, duty, and which is really her understanding of what being a monarch is. Uh, and she mentions that they have to respect the gods of the Seven Kingdoms if they will serve the Seven Kingdoms, which is another clear reference to the fact that in this era, at least, Targaryens have still retained their own Valyrian religion. But she does demand that her boys swear on the seven-pointed star that they will take no part in any fighting, stressing that they go as emissaries, not knights. Uh, they swear uh, Luke obviously takes it most seriously, and then she gives them their messages. She's very reassuring to Luke, telling him that he has just a short flight, that he has Baratheon blood via his grandmother Rhaenys, and that Lord Boros will be honored to host a prince of the realm and his dragon. And as much as that extremely prescient line delivered to Luke's anxious little face struck at my heart. I also couldn't help but think of Ned Stark and his paper shield in the Game of Thrones. Uh, what Rhaenyra is really relying on is her message and on Boros's perception of kinship with her son to protect him. But what happens when Boros places no stock in either? What if Boros, like so many others in the realm, believes the gossip about her sons being strong? Surely sending one of them to emphasize a shared Baratheon kingship in that case is a huge mistake. Nonetheless, urging her sons to go to it, Rhaenyra sends them off with a smile, never guessing that she's never going to see her second child again. And um, as sad as that is, the scene concludes with this stunning shot of the dragons flying. You get uh, Vermax and Jace, followed by Maylis and Rhaenys, escorting uh, her grandsons on their way as she patrols the gullet. Uh, then Arax and Luke bringing up the rear, and the three of them fly in tandem for just a moment, and then uh, Lucerus and his white and gold dragon head off south in the direction of Storm's End. Okay, and speaking of stunning dragons, we next get an isolated scene where Damon ventures into the dragon's lair. He's singing in High Valyrian, and he does pretty good. Writing consultant T. Mickle has shared the lyrics that she wrote for this scene that were translated into High Valyrian by David J. Peterson. So it goes, Fire breather, winged leather, but two heads to a third sing. From my voice the fires have spoken, and the price has been paid with blood magic, with words of flame, with clear eyes, to bind the three you to you I sing. 
As one we gather, and with three heads we shall fly as we were designed, beautifully, freely. So, some nice Valerian poetry there. It was a, a real surprise to get that. And I'm very, very glad that they included it. It sort of makes the world building, gives some more depth to the world building. And I've got to say, I'm intrigued by the line that says the price has been paid with blood magic. I'd love to know more. Anyway, Damon puts his torch down and a dragon emerges from the darkness and absolutely roasts the ceiling of the cave with a jet of flame. Damon remains calm, carries on singing. This is a castle dragon. Castle dragons are dragons that have already had a rider at some point, as opposed to the wild ones living around the volcanic areas. And it's noted in Fire and Blood and elsewhere that castle dragons are easier to tame than wild ones. And even though this dragon is spraying fire all over the place, I bet that he is calmer than the wild ones. And, of course, this dragon is Vermithor, a male dragon who once belonged to King Jaehaerys. He's the king we saw at the start of the very first episode. Since Jaehaerys' death, Vermithor has remained riderless. But Daemon knows how valuable this dragon is. Vermithor is around 100 years old. So, although he's 80 years shy of Vagar, he's had Plenty of time to grow large. Dragons just grow on and on. They never stop growing. What Damon's thinking here, I believe, is that he needs dragons that are large enough to take down Vagar. As we're about to see in the Vagar versus Arak scene, the younger dragons are not going to stand a chance. Vagar is a super weapon among super weapons. The question for Damon is. Who is going to ride the old king's dragon? Because once someone bonds with with this dragon, the, the rider and the dragon seem to be linked for life. So this is going to be a huge call going forward. The short scene ends with Damon and Vermithor looking into each other's eyes. And we sense that Damon has big plans for this dragon. So it's very exciting to think about the future. Maybe we can mention this when we do our spoiler section. And unfortunately, the next scene proves the truth of Damon's dragon concerns. Yes, it does. Uh, we're talking about Storm's End now. Luke arrives at Storm's End and we immediately can see why it gets its name. A huge storm going. <laughs> he announces himself and before going inside, we get to see the great dragon Vagar ridden by Luke's uncle Aemond, too big for the castle yard. It's a bad omen, but the boy continues taking his responsibility as messenger very seriously. He's announced to Lord Boros Baratheon, who is the current lord of Storm's End. Uh, while his father, Lord Borman, ruled, the Baratheons were close with houses Targaryen and Velaryon. Princess Rhaenys' mother was a Baratheon, making Rhaenys and Borman cousins. In Fire and Blood, it said that Borman was stone, but his son Boros, the current lord, was the wind that rages and howls, blowing this way and that. He's also a very proud man. It's unlikely that Rhaenyra's poor treatment of her suitors on Storm's End or the subsequent death of Gerald Bracken there left a super favorable impression on Boros either. So when Luke arrives with his mother's reminder, a step behind Aemond, he's already off balance. 
the Lord of Storms, and appears to be enjoying being courted by both sides of the House of the Dragon, mocking both Luke and Aemond at times. Luke's written message soon exposes Lord Boros as illiterate, and the message itself is poorly received. Boros proves to be a toxic combo of both proud and uneducated, and much prefers the flattery and a marriage pact between Prince Aemon and his daughter Floris to stern reminders and familial guilt from Rhaenyra via written messages, no less. Uh, The scene is really ripped right from the pages of Fire and Blood with only one major omission, which I'll come back to, but I really credit the writers and actors for bringing the motives behind the actions. Lord Boros tells Luke he 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 isn't some pup to be whistled up at need against to set against her foes again using dialogue right from the book. He attempts to send Luke on his way at this point. Aemon, who's already won over Lord Boros, cannot help himself though. He tells Luke he requires an eye in payment, calling him Lord Strong and accusing him of attempting to steal the throne from his brother, just generally taunting him and not letting things drop. Luke reminds him that he's there as a messenger, not a warrior. And after a brief conflict mostly brought on by Aemond, he's allowed to leave. Aemond appears triumphant, you know, in this situation. That small book omission I mentioned uh, is a prompting from Lord Boros's daughter Maris, not the one that he chose, uh, who asks Aemond if they cut off one of his balls along with one of his eyes to let Luke walk off like that. I was a little bit bummed that the Baratheon girls dubbed the four storms in the books, didn't get any speaking parts, but omitting that taunt did add a bit of suspense for what comes next, particularly for non-book readers, I thought. Okay, so with that set up, then it was on to, at the top of the episode, I was talking about, you know, this wonderful sequence. I think that it sort of took our breaths away. So let's talk about that. When Luke leaves Storm's End... We see how bad the conditions are outside the castle. Arax is a small young dragon who seems upset by the storm. Luke tells him to be calm, but already there are question marks about controlling an animal like this that's distressed. Arax takes off and labours through the air. The wind is so strong that the dragon is being swept this way and that really at the mercy of the elements and the shots above the sea are really fantastic there's thunder and lightning and pounding rain major horror vibes so major props to the effects department for their work on this sequence we get a shot from under Arax looking up with the clouds in the background and watching Arax toil in the air and then there's a bolt of lightning that lights up the sky and we see Vegar's silhouette gliding above them. This was amazing, brilliantly done. My heart nearly stopped in its chest. And it really reminded me of movies like Jaws, when you get a quick flash of the shark. And that's all it takes just to terrify you, just one quick second. And the shot also put into perspective exactly how much Vegar is, you know alongside Arax we really got to see the difference between these two dragons in the main series Arstan Whitebeard tells Danny that dragons never stop growing he of Vagar is about 180 years old and Arax is around 12 so this is a total mismatch and Arax looks more like a bat than a dragon in some of these scenes Luke sees Vagar 
and you you know that he's vulnerable he feels vulnerable so Vagar wheels around and almost collides with Arax and we hear Eamon's cartoon villain laughter a twirling moustache movie cliche that I know not everyone enjoyed including Lady Gwyn who moaned to me about it but it it certainly conveyed how comfortable Eamon and Vagar were in that storm it wasn't bothering them Arax dives and turns with Vagar snapping snapping at the heels and the smaller dragon manages to find safety in the crevice between two rocks. If I was Luke, I would have stayed out there, stayed there out of harm's way because Vagar is so large he can't get close. Instead, Arax darts past Vagar, and as Luke tries to control him, Arax can't help himself and spits out flame at Vagar. This is just, you know, this is not what you want to be doing. Luke is screaming at his dragon to serve him. And at the same time, we see Eamon struggling control his dragon, the mightily pissed off Vagar, who did not appreciate getting that bolt of flame in, in her face. So Arax climbs in the sky and we get an absolutely stunning shot above the storm clouds. It's a moment of calm for Luke who looks relieved the the viewer is disarmed for a moment in this beautiful environment. And then from out of nowhere comes Vagar to take both dragon and rider between her jaws, apparently acting against Eamon's, Eamon's orders there. And so, yeah, there's this discussion about how much control a rider has over their dragon but remember that Septon Bath wrote, It may well be that dragons somehow sense and echo the moods of their riders. So there's this sort of telepathic intuition going on. And yeah, if you think, well, Eamon was chasing Arax very closely. So what sort of message did that give to Vega? <laughs> And yeah, in the text, even when the blacks and the greens were at peace, their dragons could sense the hidden hostilities. Peace prevailed through the realm, though there were some sharp-eyed who observed the dragons of one party snapping and spitting flames at the dragons of the other party whenever they passed near each other. So yeah, like I was saying, are you really going to blame Vega for this? I'm not sure. I think that Amond might have tried to pull out of it at the last moment, but he was there and he was aggressively pursuing Arax and that was a very dangerous thing to be doing and he was doing that on purpose. So, you know, if you've got to blame Vega, you've got to consider that she was picking up on the mood of the rider. She was distressed by the storm and she was definitely triggered by Arax's attack. These are animals after all. You know, you can bond with these animals, but they're still animals. And as such, they have a mind of their own. And, you know, I, I don't see that as any sort of weak writing to portray the dragons in, in that way. This is fascinating because the scene introduces a concept of dragon free will, which is something I'd wager most of us never really gave much thought to before Sunday. Viserys remarked earlier in the season that the idea we control the dragons is an illusion, uh, which was 
pretty easy to write off in the moment when he said it, considering he had never ridden a dragon since Balerion's death, and even that was just one quick spin about the castle, as it's described. Uh, so I think many of us had considered that the bond between dragon and rider is absolute and kind of like a warg thing, right? That an experienced rider and dragon would always act in consort. But remember, these two riders aren't really all that experienced. Even Amond is pretty fresh, especially when you take his mount, the nearly 200-year-old Vagar, into account. Um, recall that Balerion, the Black Dread, was noted to be very hard to control later in his life. His flight to Valyria with Arya Targaryen being extreme evidence of that. And if you don't know what I mean about that reference. Uh, you can read about it in Fire and Blood or check out our new episode all about dragons where we talk through that um, pretty dramatic event. Uh, we know that Danny's dragons don't always listen to her, uh, especially Drogon during their her final chapter in the Dothraki Sea. And we also see the training that the young princes are, you know, undergoing in House of the Dragon. They're learning High Valyrian. They're learning techniques for controlling the dragons from these specially trained dragon keepers. And that certainly, I think, underscores that control isn't as easy as just forming a bond. It's not something that just happens naturally. So given Aemon's aggression towards Luke... I did find this scene to be a curious departure at first, but I think it actually works pretty well with not only with the idea that a dragon is no slave, uh, which is a line I was reminded strongly of when Aemond was commanding Vagar to serve him, but also with the repeated suggestion that bonded dragons are highly attuned to the emotions of their riders, as Yokeboy was saying earlier both of these riders were highly agitated luke was scared and his dragon tried to protect him aemond was full of rage and the joy of the chase and vagar just gave in to that whatever was going through aemond's minds and mind in those last moments i'd say he has some work ahead of him when he returns to king's landing he's gonna have to take responsibility for this and we all know that this is kind of the point of no return uh, in the conflict between the Blacks and the Greens, and uh, whether Aemond does so in a way that continues to humanize him, or if he goes further down the road of cartoon villain, I guess remains to be seen. So, um, probably be a while before we <laughs> get to answer that question fully. So, uh, this does bring us to the final scene of the episode, which has no dialogue. It is pure physical acting, as uh, so many of the really great scenes of this season have been, especially ones that involve Matt Smith as Damon. He's so fantastic at this physical, silent acting. Uh, we see Damon enter the council chamber, where Rhaenyra's standing at the painted table with her counselors. He approaches her and sort of gently takes her hand and draws her away from the group, and we see only their backs as he speaks to her. But regardless, you can tell, you can pinpoint the exact moment when he says the words, your son is dead. Uh, she staggers, but uh, she pulls herself together and turns around. And it's very clear that all of her efforts to avoid war have now failed. She has suffered a wound from which there can be no recovery and no reconciliation ever, only fire, blood, vengeance, 
Um, and speaking of fire and blood, Damon isn't actually present for this scene in the book. Uh, he's already in the Riverlands, but he's obviously received the news in parallel with Rhaenyra. So I thought we would end this uh, this analysis with the passage from the book, which says, On Dragonstone, Queen Rhaenyra collapsed when told of Luke's death. Luke's young brother Joffrey, Jace was still away on his mission north, swore a terrible oath of vengeance against Prince Aemond and Lord Boros. Only the intervention of the sea snake and Princess Rhaenys kept the boy from mounting his own dragon at once. As the Black Council sat to consider how to strike back, a raven arrived from Daemon. An eye for an eye, a son for a son, Prince Daemon wrote. Lucerus shall be avenged. Okay, so that's our left-to-right analysis done, but stay with us because we've still got more. We're going to do some fun featurettes now, and then we're going to have a spoiler section towards the end. So stick around. So why don't we lighten the mood and do our fun sections? Let's start Dragon Watch. How was Dragon Watch today, Lady Gwyn? Oh, this week on Dragon Watch, we had seven dragons. Silk boy, seven guys. Maylis, Vermax, Arax, Caraxes, Cyrax, Vermithor, and Vagar. Plus, we had Damon's list where he enumerated all the dragons, almost all. Uh, he talks about the Blacks' numerical advantage over the Greens and Dragons. 13 for the Blacks, who are Cyrax, Caraxes, Maylis, Vermax, Arax, Taraxes, which is young Joffrey Valerian's dragon. Uh, Moon Dancer, Sea Smoke, Vermithor, and Silverwing, plus the three wild dragons, whose names he does not mention, uh, versus the Greens' four. He very distinctly says the Greens have four dragons, but he only mentions three adults, Vagar, Sunfire, and Dreamfire. Uh, in my opinion, that unmentioned fourth dragon probably belongs to the unmentioned uh, fourth child of Alicent and Viserys, uh, Daron which is uh, Allison's younger son, not seen in this season. Uh, we've talked about it in in the streams before, so I think, and uh, George has publicly said that he's going to be in season two, so hopefully that's not too much of a spoiler uh, that there is actually a fourth uh, son, and he's got a dragon. Uh, not fourth son, fourth child. But yeah, so big, big dragon watch, probably the biggest one yet. Okay, so now let's move on and our fun section, Champ or Chump. So let's talk about the Champ of the Week. And I give that to Emily. Who's your champ? Who's the champ this week? Once again, I'm going to say I think you guys might have designed it so that I had to pick the Chump during the Green episode and then the Champ during the Black episode, and that was hard work. I've gone back and forth on this all week, but I think uh, as of time of time of recording, I have settled on Sir Eric Cargill. While Rhaenyra was obviously a champ and much more queenly than her fire and blood depiction during the sequence, and Rhaenys was incredibly influential in bringing aid to the Blacks, Sir Eric won out for me. He has less personal investments in the Blacks by quite a bit, and in fact had to turn his back on his brother in order to choose who he saw as the true heir, someone that he felt was honorable enough to rule the Seven Kingdoms. 
His arrival with the crown gives Rhaenyra one of her first major symbols of legitimacy, as did the vows he swore in front of that group of people. Okay. I like that. So chump of the week, Lady Gwyn, who's the chump? No, chump, uh, definitely for me, Boros Baratheon. Um, This guy is a chump. I get he might have been any of the things that Fire and Blood suggests uh, in the moment when Lucerys arrived in his hall, ashamed at being caught entertaining the Green Prince. Maybe was he was excited at having two claimants vying for his support. Maybe he was drunk. Typical Baratheon? I don't know. Uh, maybe he was afraid. Let's face it. Vagar was literally sitting outside his walls and Aemond doesn't exactly exude warmth. So maybe he was being his pants. But the least he could have done is receive Luke in private or maybe think about having his maester read Rhaenyra's entire letter instead of the five second cliff notes. Maybe he could have demanded that Aemon stay in the castle after Luke left. Uh, You know, it's easy enough to say, if you want my support, just let the boy leave. Or maybe remind the angry prince about the perils of kinslaying or or something rather than just guessed right. Nope, he just tosses them out from under his roof like a bouncer in a bar telling him, take it outside in the name of avoiding personal liability and who who cares what happens next? I think that uh, Boris Baratheon ought to have the word chump tattooed on his forehead. Okay, so why don't we finish the episode by talking about a topic each that we wanted to discuss, but we couldn't because we want to be spoiler-free and not ruin everyone's perception of the future of the story who hasn't read Fire and Blood. So let's... Give a huge heads up for spoiler time. Lady Gwyn? Spoilers all books. Yeah, spoilers all books. Lady Gwyn, what spoilery topic are you going to talk us through? Well, I think that this episode did a great job introducing or or highlighting um, a number of characters who are going to be significant in future seasons. Uh, I was just talking about one of them, Boros Baratheon. He's not going to be all that significant. Uh, to be honest, he basically sits out the war after this uh, after uh, this event, probably because he's terrified of facing dragons in the field, uh, especially black dragons. But, uh, yep, we will see more of him. We've got Maester Gerardus, uh, Rhaenyra's maester, who will be named her Grand Maester and will eventually suffer an ugly end at the hands of her half-brother. We've got Lord Bartimos Celtigar, who uh, was introduced here, is Rhaenyra's master of coin, will almost single-handedly ruin her brief reign and reputation in King's Landing. We saw Lady Alinda Massey, one of Rhaenyra's ladies-in-waiting, who will loyally remain with her until the bitter end, and I mean the bitter end. In Fire and Blood, she witnesses Rhaenyra's grisly fate and reportedly gouges her eyes out in grief and horror. We've got Sir Stephen Darklin, who will be named Lord Commander of the Queen's Guard, but will die during the sowing of the seeds trying to mount Laner Valerian Sea Smoke. Sir Laurent Marbrand, who follows Darklin as Lord Commander, uh, will eventually perish in the riots of King's Landing, along with several of his fellows, and Sir Eric Cargill, whose death was hinted at in this episode when Damon mentioned the Green's potential for a stealth attack, 
which as we know, and we've discussed before, will come in the form of Eric's twin, Sir Eric, who was also in this episode accompanying Sir Otto on his mission to Dragonstone. So um, there you go. Um, there are no happy endings, folks. Sorry. But <laughs> I think that this this episode did a great job establishing characters uh, who are have been either not seen before or have been mostly in the background and are going to have larger roles in upcoming season or seasons and seeing all of those names pop up on my screen definitely made me really look forward to future episodes you covered some some maybe more minor or secondary characters really well uh you know i like to cover characters in this section too and i realized i'd covered pretty much every member of house valarian at this point so it's time to talk about the matriarch by marriage, Rhaenys, the queen who never was. We've talked a ton about her history, so I'll try to just hit on the critical points here. You know, we did an excellent breakdown of her backstory and history in the preview episode in season one. I think Gwyn did that section for us. So I'll focus on her from kind of the start of the dance onward. Unlike in the show, Rhaenys was not in King's Landing at the time of Aegon's crowning, and her husband had already recovered from the illness that led to the succession crisis and Vaemon's death. Furthermore, House Valarian's ties to Rhaenyra through the marriage pacts with Jace and Vela, Luke and Rhaena were sealed long ago. So Rhaenys and House Valarian were pretty much all in on Team Black from the get-go. I did appreciate the show giving Rainey's more agency and time to arrive at that decision. Her feelings about Rhaenyra being named heir by the very man, her cousin, who supplanted her claim were no doubt complex. So it's nice to see the show exploring that and then allowing her to definitively choose Rhaenyra. Rhaenys came to the Black Council with wisdom and a desire to gain the advantage uh, over the, you know, with dragons. Damon's speech, like mentioned earlier, uh, about the wild and unclaimed dragons actually comes from Rhaenys in the in Fire and Blood. In the in the Black Council, she agrees to be her husband's eye in the sky and uh, you know help seal the gullet while you know the children act only as messengers. Damon uh, wasn't at the council in the show, but he is he is you know being is going to be heading off to Harrenhal in the Riverlands. And Rhaenyra actually remains at Dragonstone for a while to recover strength from her birth. Again, that might be changed considering she was mounting a dragon like a day after birth uh, in the show. But like Gwen said, no one has happy endings. And I fear that we won't have much screen time left with our queen that never was. Her mission will soon take her to Rook's Rest in an attempt to lay waste to Sir Criston Cole and his armies. What waits for her there? Well, I don't know how far I should spoil. Tune in next season. Will do. Yeah, I'm looking forward to more dragon action next season. I think that we all love dragons after Game of Thrones, but the the variety that's coming into the fore has really captured people's imaginations. And the show's done well to give them unique characteristics. And so forth so i'm very happy this season and looking forward to more as damon mentioned the blacks do have more dragons that are currently riderless we saw vermithor and then the silverwing and sea smoke who have all previously had riders but there's three wild dragons sheep stealer gray ghost and the cannibal given dragons are the key to winning the war the blacks will be looking to pair these dragons up with riders but there's a big problem. They're going to have to look outside of their immediate family to do so. 
in Fire and Blood, the blacks encourage dragon seeds to try and mount these six dragons in return for rewards like lands and lordships and oh honor. And dragon seeds are the illegitimate children of Targaryens or their descendants and relatives that are living on Dragonstone who have a drop of Targaryen blood. Sure, pairing up the riders with dragons sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? But in reality, it's it's desperation. It's it's really a desperate move. And allowing characters they don't really know to mount these weapons of mass destruction puts a lot of faith in these seeds. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I can't wait to see how this is all portrayed and panning out in season two. I think it's going to be great. More dragon action for one thing. And I'm really excited to, in particular, to see the three wild dragons. The mud brown, ugly looking, sheep munching sheep stealer. I don't think you're ugly sheep stealer. Everyone's favourite pescatarian, grey ghost, always in for the diving into the sea for fish. And the one with a taste for his own, the cannibal. Dragon lovers, we have a lot to look forward to in season two of House of the Dragon. Okay, so that brings an end to our show reviews. But as we said earlier, we will be having a season one wrap up live stream. And, you know, it's for a good cause. And that's going to be on YouTube only because it'll be more informal. There'll be more guests and it won't suit the podcast format. So... If you're listening on the podcast, come and subscribe to Radio Westeros on YouTube and don't miss out on the fun. And I think it will be a lot of fun. And last but certainly not least, I want to thank Emily for joining us. Thanks, guys. I've been having so much fun all season with you. Um, Yeah. Uh, I don't have my own podcast or anything. I am on Twitter at Emily of the Erie. I, you know, I've been on a few of your live streams in the past and I also occasionally join San Rixian for her Patreon streams. And finally, I want to say thanks to all our patrons who keep us going and keep our ship sailing. Thanks to all patrons. It's been a great season. Appreciate every single person that's tuned in and So why don't we lead out Lady Gwyn with our patron role. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, June of Hausaiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, the Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Diarless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. 
and our Castle Steel patrons. AJ, Aegon the Sixth, the only Arsling you need, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashenot Yara, Oakenfist, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint Vandal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gage, Armor of Castle Greyguard, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarion, the White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahu of What, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, and Matt M, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick Wanirik, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Raymond, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Sherry, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terrence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helmuth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Warren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioestros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.